Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Federal conservative leadership candidate Patrick Brown has been disqualified from the race. Hamilton councillors received the complete street design report. New rules for short-term rentals in Hamilton are on the way. We're being told to get ready for a summer wave of COVID infections. Find out why things are getting really busy at animal shelters. And Maple Leafs fans are number one. But it's not what you think. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Bombshell of a news report from overnight. Patrick Brown has been disqualified from the federal conservative leadership race for apparently violating some financial provisions of the Canada Elections Act. Well, what happens now? And can he get back in? Kim Wright is a principal and founder of Wright Strategies and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, good morning. How are you? Uh, better than Patrick Brown this morning. <laughs> Apparently so. Um, did anybody see this coming? So there has been, obviously, uh, since Patrick Brown's uh, Ontario leadership run, there's been questions around uh, how some of the practices were run. You, listeners might remember uh, there's still some outstanding questions about lists from the 407 that were put into uh, his leadership races in the past. There was thought that this might, all of these scandals uh, and, and question marks might have been put past uh, Mr. Brown when he was first approved by the Leadership Organizing Committee a couple of months ago. Uh, but as we discovered late last night, uh, Leoc uh, had their meeting and has voted to disqualify Mr. Brown. Now, they're going to have to have some really clear communications on this uh, because anything at this point uh, looks a little dubious that uh, this all of a sudden came out and whether this was an anonymous tip line or a snitch line. And seriously, Rick, what is with conservatives and snitch lines? <laughs> uh, but here we go again. And, uh, you know, there's lots of questions uh, this morning being asked by all leadership campaigns and all the members to be sure the uh, the party committee says it's not going to be speaking on the subject um, until further investigation is done when do we expect some sort of I guess more information to come well you're going to start to see this uh, this starting to leak really hard and fast. Leoc members, party uh, party folks, uh, I suspect the Brown campaign as well, and we've seen a statement from the Brown campaign uh, that is charitably uh, right uh, right angry about what's, what has happened. Uh, so there, there's certainly questions. And Leoc has, and the Conservative Party, beyond Leoc, they have to be crystal clear. If you are going to throw out a leadership candidate that has sold you know, thousands of memberships has a following uh, without any sort of clarity as to why they have done this. This is going to put a big shadow across all of uh, all of their leadership candidates and campaigns going forward. We're chatting about Patrick Brown's disqualification from the federal conservative leadership race with Kim Wright, principal and founder of Wright Strategies. And um, I guess the question is, how does this change the race or does it? Well, that that becomes the big question mark. You know, where will they reprint all of the ballots? And my understanding is there's some uh, ballots that have already print, been printed with Patrick Brown's name. Uh, so do they have some intern with a Sharpie uh, going through that? Or how will that work? Their voting system for the Conservative Party is complex in that every riding has a 100-point system, but it's also a ranked balloting process. Uh, so there are certainly questions as to uh, as to whether what that will look like as as people cast ballots, as ballots are being sent out. 
uh, and where do, where do the, uh, the, the non-Patrick Brown votes, those number twos as we call them, which actually when I say it out loud sounds a little strange, but there you are, uh, but those second ballot supports, where do they go? Do they go to Jean Charest? Do they stay home? Uh, how do they capitalize on, the, on those votes uh, in this persuasion period of the Conservative Party leadership? Very interesting developments out of the Federal Conservative leadership race. Kim, thanks for the time this morning and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Indeed. Thanks so much, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Kim Wright, principal and founder of Wright Strategies, and is uh, obviously in tune with what is happening with uh, the political scene, including this latest development with the uh, federal conservative leadership race. Unbelievable. It's also the focus of our Twitter poll question today at AM900CHML. Do you think Brown's disqualification was done to ensure that Pierre Poiliev becomes the party's new leader? That's the suggestion from the Brown camp. Get three options, yes, no, or it's too early to say. Right now, 55% say yes, 34% say no, 11% say it's too early to say. Maybe that information will come out uh, very soon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have a collision on our streets um, every 63 minutes. We have a fatality every 26 days. We have a pedestrian struck every one and a half days. We have a person injured every six hours. Some of those people are inside a car. Some of those people are outside a car. That is Councillor Maureen Wilson on Good Morning Hamilton yesterday as we chatted about the complete street design manual that is going before Hamilton Councillor today and that really sums it up in a nutshell how uh, how dangerous it is i mean that's the word that comes to mind for pedestrians for cyclists in this city the stats are in black and white for everyone to see and hear and the latest report to come before the council table comes a day after a cyclist died up on the mountain after that individual was hit by a vehicle two days after a four-year-old boy was injured after being struck by a vehicle, and comes as we are in the midst of the deadliest year in years for fatal pedestrian collisions. And it has many, including our next guest, irate, including myself. I mean, enough is enough. Tom Flood is a Hamilton resident, principal at Ravello Creative, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Tom, good morning. Welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, you sent out a flurry of tweets yesterday following the latest collision in our city, which led to the death of a cyclist up on the mountain. Uh, tell us your thoughts, your feelings, as you were tweeting out the information and the message that you wanted to convey. Yeah, I mean, r- really, it's just to what you said. Um, after such a deadly, deadly, deadly year already, and then that four-year-old being hit by the driver of the pickup truck and then waking up to the news uh, again, with um, a person on a bike being killed by a driver yesterday, it was just extremely upsetting. And, and, and what really caught me and something that I tend to focus on is when I saw that kind of live on scene report with the, the police officer, um, you know, the, the question was, you know, how did this happen and what's happening on the streets? And, you know, he said, with so many deaths, we're just, we're not really sure what's happening. We don't know what the problem is. And, alluded to at the end to saying, you know, what we should be doing is making sure that we're making eye contact with the drivers. And then, of course, the drivers should be putting down their phone. And yes, that that may be somewhat okay advice to tell drivers to not be looking at their phones. But we've been doing this and asking drivers to drive safe for a century now. 
it's not working. We have to move on to proven solutions. And we have to stop essentially asking and telling those outside the car, you know, how to be safe. And instead, we really have to remove all, you know, opportunities for the driver to be dangerous. And we know that and everybody knows that we just need to implement that. One part of your tweet yesterday uh, said, quote, nothing will change until we start talking about the root causes and not just asking people to be perfect. Let's dive into those root causes. What are we not doing on the roads in terms of the drivers that we should be doing? Well, we need to have our design dictate what the drivers are doing. I'm, I'm a driver, um, and I know how I feel when I'm in safer spaces to drive, which obviously aren't these kind of five-lane highways um, that we have in our, in our city. So we just really need to design out the conflict. We, it's, it, it's so, it, it, it sounds really simple, but it's become very complicated because so many people have politicized some of these very small measures, you know, no, no rights on red you know, narrowing down streets, things like this that we already know that works. Um, we just have to push these through and get them done. This is a five alarm fire that we continually address. We don't address it. We're, we're just letting the house burn down and it's going to continue on until we make some real change. Part of the, um, I guess, suggestions or ideas in the complete street design manual includes increasing the amount of space for pedestrians and shoring up the protection between cars, uh, pedestrians and cyclists as well. At the end of the day, though, you know, whether it's an intersection or along a street or wherever the scenario there's going to be a driver who makes a mistake, who's inattentive, who's uh, rushing around, not paying attention, uh, and that's still yeah. going to lead to accidents, injury, and death. It's never going to be a perfect world, but I guess the idea behind this report and this manual is we can still make it a lot safer. That's exactly it. Let's mitigate as much as we humanly can at this point, and we'll see where we are then. But the idea of waiting for this perfect plan to eliminate everything is 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 it's literally killing our residents and our community and our children we have to act now and if it doesn't stop every one of them well at least it will stop let's say even one is worth it and this this is as you mentioned has been going uh, on for you know a hundred years the the automobile has been around for for decades now but have you noticed because i have have you noticed things getting worse since the return quote-unquote of motorists um, um during the pandemic um, I, honestly, I don't, I don't really have a read on driver behavior since the pandemic and, 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 and post kind of where we are now, but I, we've been living this, especially in Hamilton. I mean, we, we have these spaces that are just dedicated and draw and prioritized for the driver all over the city. Um, so the, what's happening here, these aren't just random accidents that we've talked about. These are direct results of what we've planned on voted on this is we're getting the city that we've um that we've built we're getting the results that we've built we got about 30 seconds if this report or manual does not include changing main to two-way will it be a failure well it it really should i don't want to i have not looked at this report so apologies for that um i mean that that's that's the easiest one to attack right away so i I don't want to comment on something i haven't read but absolutely may need to be two-way Tom, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us, and thank you for being so passionate and keeping all of us safe here in town. Thanks.
extra time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New rules may be coming for short-term rentals here in Hamilton. What's it going to look like? How's it going to work? What is the impact going to be? Robert Ustricki is the Senior Project Manager at Municipal Law Enforcement with the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you very much for having me aboard, Rick. So what's going on? How is the city going to do this? Well, it's uh, been quite a long project trying to track, especially through the pandemic, where uh, STRs, and I'll use the acronym STR for short-term rental, they were struggling and uh, certainly closed down by provincial regulation during that period. But uh, as the tourist industry starts to uh, be starting up again, then certainly uh, they are it is growing again uh, beyond what existed prior to the pandemic. Uh, what uh, the city is doing is that uh, certainly uh, the report we presented in uh, planning committee yesterday uh, spoke about the results of the public consultation that we had in 2018 and 17, uh, summary of our research and the recommendation on the how the city may respond to STR. And uh, we introduced the proposed bylaw to amend the city licensing bylaw uh, itself to be returned to the planning committee at a later date. Overall, the short-term rental and uh, looking at best practices, not only uh, within the province of Ontario, but also globally, is a house-sharing or uh, model which uh, follows that it's the principal residence that uh, qualifies for having an STR license. And by that, I mean uh, the actual dwelling unit the the individual may live in. So if I own a home, I can use that home as a short-term rental. If I own two homes, one being my principal residence, the other being, let's say, just an investment property that I've been using as a short-term rental, or the options are I have to sell that second home or or the other option being I have to make that a long-term rental property? Uh, that is correct. You know, uh, turning around to uh, some of the municipalities, and, and really it's playing catch-up uh, to the short-term rental uh, phenomena that uh, uh, expanded uh, with Airbnb. And that's, uh, yes, the, we're finding that the research in other jurisdictions that the a lot of these uh, short-term rentals were returned back into the long-term uh, rental uh, uh, market itself. And that's going to help with the rental market here, because as we know, there's not a lot to choose from, and prices are going through the roof in many cases. Uh, absolutely. You know, when you look at the, and, and this is, uh, no two STR licensing schemes are exactly the same. We're following currently right now the uh, Toronto model, and you have to examine each municipality, or each municipality has to look at the uh, socio-economic uh, demographics. You know, in the uh, meeting yesterday in planning committee, uh, councillors Pearson, Ferguson, uh, Farr, and Danko raised uh, certain issues. But it uh, came down to the fact that, yes, we may have to alter slightly what is available or to give alternatives uh, for the uh, council to consider on the second round uh, to make it a Hamilton you know, made for Hamilton uh, uh, licensing scheme. How does this work if you have, let's say, uh, a, a fourplex and you're using that as a short-term rental? Is that allowed? 
under the current uh, scheme, that would not be allowed of, for the property owner if that is their principal residence. Uh, essentially, if each, if if the other three units you're talking about four units, if the other three units were in long-term rental, then the tenants on each one of those may obtain a license if they have the uh, uh, consent of the uh, landowner. All right, interesting. Robert Ustricki is our guest, Senior Project Manager, Municipal Law Enforcement with the City of Hamilton. We're talking about new rules soon to be on the way for short-term rentals in Hamilton. How confident are you that these new rules are going to cut down, eliminate those neighborhood complaints about party houses? Well, I think uh, really uh, there was a study that came out of the City of Toronto that uh, these type of complaints are proportionate to what is normally seen in residential areas. Uh, Airbnb has a very robust, uh, I guess, uh, a program or policy to deal with these, what they, what is commonly referred to as a party house. And uh, that they have a 24-hour line where members of the public can contact Airbnb if it happens to be the platform in which case the STR was uh, uh, used. Then they can uh, contact uh, Airbnb and actually have uh, the listing taken off of uh, their platform. Uh, they also have uh, a robust uh, a platform and agreements with uh, many of the uh, police uh, agencies and municipalities of uh, a portal for uh, for decommissioning these listings on their platform uh, individually by all by municipalities uh, globally. Robert, if this uh, short-term rental plan is passed, as is by council, how many properties would be impacted, and would we see that number decline? Looking at uh, what has happened, and we are tracking the Toronto model, uh, you know, although it uh, took a little bit of time with uh, a zoning appeal that uh, they had to deal with, uh, and certainly they were successful with it, but uh, they actually started uh, officially enforcing their model in January 1st of 2021. So tracking what is happening in there uh, is that there's a certain percentage, and it varies. Uh, we don't have all the data today, but it shows that uh, uh, certainly these so-called commercial uh, STRs uh, that are returned back into the uh, rental housing market. So I feel it will be successful. It will be a long uh I guess, engagement uh, in order to implement the program. We're starting from zero to uh, just under a 1,000 STRs in the city of Hamilton. But uh, staff are confident that we'll be able to gain a certain level uh, of, uh, I guess, assurance to the public that STR is, is conducted responsibly in the city of Hamilton. And if approved by council, when can we see this take effect? If approved by council, uh, you're going to see the uh, the matter taking effect, or at least enforcement, in uh, early 2023. Uh, hopefully, January 1st, and uh, there will be a period, as I said, phased in, where uh, certainly uh, registration and applications can be received and processed uh, prior to that. Uh, but we're we're hoping and we're targeting for the first of the year. All right. Sounds like a great plan, Robert. Appreciate the time today. Good luck with it. 
Thank you. My privilege for being on your show. Robert Eustricke is a senior project manager, municipal law enforcement with the city of Hamilton. As we chew on the latest reports coming out of city council that looks at short-term rental properties in the city and some new rules that are soon to be on the way as early as January 1st of 2023. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are calls for the Ford government to immediately unveil a plan to expand access to four Fourth doses of COVID-19 vaccine across the province. And all this comes as health experts are warning us about a summer wave of COVID-19 infections. Is this wave already begun? How severe is it going to be? How long is it going to last? Timothy Sly is an epidemiologist and professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Sly, how are you today? Uh, Very well, Rick. Thank you very much. The head of the province's science advisory table says signs are emerging that suggest a summer wave is underway. Uh, given that we're back to normal, was this expected? Oh, I think I'd uh, take issue with the, uh, the the comment, we're back to normal. We're not back to normal at all. Uh, yeah, we, we are in the middle of uh, yet another wave. We didn't really want to... Uh, think of this last year we were thinking now the third wave would be the end of it all and now we're looking at i don't know what the number is i've lost count actually at the moment but yeah all the indicators are going up remember we don't count cases anymore okay because nobody's doing proper testing so we don't quite know what the uh, but we can look at the other indicators the hospitalization rates they're going up they increased by about a about a hundred in a month so we're, we're at about a hundred people now in hospital with covid at the moment so we were about that's about 600 about 500 about a month ago so that's going up the other indicator is the wastewater signal in other words uh, how much virus is actually moving around in people's uh, 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 urine and feces and that's that's going up in all areas of the province as well so the virus hasn't got the memo about it get back to normal yet <laughs> how severe will this wave be or could it be and- And could it extend into and grow in severity come this fall? Well, of course, severity really means uh, a couple of things. It means uh, uh, how severe is it to you as an individual if you get this particular infection. And so far, uh, the the, the Omicron family, because it's a family now, there's a whole bunch of them in the same category. Uh, They're not particularly uh, any more lethal or pathogenic in fact by some major measures they're they're less dangerous to you but given that the the numbers are going back up again as a society we begin to see more people as we just said a moment ago in hospital therefore more uh, pressure on the medical services at a time when their absentee rate is is increased enormously mainly because of absenteeism because of illness and absenteeism because they've they've retired or left or or whatever other reason so you see the pressures begin to build again one thing for sure we're, we're moving toward we're not quite there yet we're moving toward a true endemic situation that doesn't mean the end of the pandemic as some people have uh, asked me <laughs> it, it simply means a, a level where uh, much like the common cold or the flu on a seasonal basis we expect it it's going to be there it doesn't really change year after year that's where we're going to be he- heading for this particular uh, outbreak how close are we to that are we a year away a few months away well, you know, at the end of 19, at the end of 2020, we're beginning to say, well, a few more months, and the end of 21, a few more months, and and uh, we don't know. I mean, the virus has got its own will here, and as long as there are vast numbers of 
populations around the world who haven't really begun vaccination, that's where we can expect yet more variants. And so far, quite honestly, Rick, so far, the variants have all come along and they haven't really been more serious to the individual. But who knows? The next variant could be. You know, I have to ask you to remember the 2003, the SARS-1 which is a, a cousin of this one, that had more than 10 times the risk of death if you were a case of it. And another, another SARS cousin is the MERS virus in the Middle East. If the new variant looked a bit more like the MERS virus, which is another SARS one, uh, we are looking at about 30 times the uh, case fatality rate of the present. So who knows what the next variants are going to be? This is why it's so important to get the rest of the population vaccinated. And even among our domestic population, if you're not up with a third dose, this is a three dose vaccine, a three dose, a three vaccine illness. If you're not up to your three dose, get it. And if you're off at the fourth dose, get that as well. It's, it's, it's sure protection. Fourth doses have been given to many higher risk individuals. Should boosters or, or at least the fourth dose be offered to all residents now? Or should we wait for the development? I know Pfizer and Moderna are working on an Omicron based uh, vaccine. Should we, we be uh, waiting for that one? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, we're seeing signs now of a sort of a, a fall uh, this is this, this fall may be the beginning of what it probably will be the uh, a yearly fall uh, shot, which which will be mainly for for for, for uh, COVID. But I I, I wouldn't wouldn't uh, be surprised if it's not combined with the annual flu shot. So we we all line up, roll up our sleeves at the end of October, November, get our shot, which will probably contain say three. Uh, flu antigens and one COVID antigen. That'll be a, a normal routine from now on. And we've been doing that for decades and that'll probably be. And so this, this fall will probably be the, the first of those. Yes, yeah, so the answer to your question about the tweaking it, uh, the mRNA vaccines are, are fairly easy to tweak for, you know, to adjust for the latest uh, variants that are coming along. And I, I think we're, we're seeing both uh, Moderna and Pfizer both working hard on, on, on producing a vaccine in a few months that will be targeting more specifically the Omicron family. Dr. Sly, it's always great to catch up and gain your insight into this important topic. Thanks for joining us today. Stay well, Rick. Thank you. That is Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. The World Health Organization, by the way, says infections, COVID infections, are growing in 110 countries and they are up globally by 20%. So those uh, Omicron-based vaccinations um, definitely uh, should come this fall and hopefully will help uh, stunt that growth. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Did you get a new pet over the last couple of years? If you did, you are not alone. Certainly not alone. Many, many people thought, hey, I'm working from home now. You know, I've got a lot of time in my hands. You know, I'm not commuting to the office two or four hours each day. Uh, you know, the kids are home. Let's keep them entertained. Let's get a new puppy. Let's get a new kitten. Let's get a bird, whatever the case is. And now there are many people thinking, well, now I'm going back to the workplace. The kids are back in school. We have no time for a little rusty, a little fluffy anymore. We got to give this pet back. It is happening over and over and over again. So much so that animal shelters are feeling the crunch. Kevin Struband is the executive director of the Lincoln County Humane Society and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kevin, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning, Rick. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Let, let's just rewind the, the tape a little bit to the start of the pandemic. And how many people did you see come in wanting a pet or, or um, returning a pet that was unwanted after a little while? Well, the numbers were really terrific in the beginning. You know, people were like, what am I going to do? I'm kind of bored. Let's get a pet. Mm-hmm. And for the, the early times, it didn't materialize. Many people thought people were going to be bringing them back and, you know, they just turned their back or whatever the case may be. And that didn't really materialize. Now we're seeing it a bit. But I think what's really happening is that people are going out. They're having fun. They're focusing on different things. And they're not adopting, which that is increasing the numbers of pets in our shelter. That's decreasing the number of adoptions. So we're trying to encourage people to still get the pets, you know, the the normal portion of the population that generally does. And, And people are out there, so they're seeing more animals. And that ends up bringing more animals into our shelters. And, of course, summer is the busiest time in any humane society anywhere. Um, We luckily are are now past the spring when all those babies are coming in, the wildlife babies. But now we have all those kittens to contend with that are growing up. Are there more animals up for adoption now compared to before the pandemic, or is it basically the norm now? What you're seeing now is what we saw pre-pandemic as well. I I would suggest that there are more, and you know that the animals breed when they breed. That has nothing to do with the pandemic, right. but it's the people coming in. So those numbers have been reduced a bit, and it's quite understandable. You know, people are going out and having fun and. And like you said, when they're when they had the pandemic, they're coming in to get a pet because they might be bored. Well, they're not bored anymore. Um, are humane societies, are adoption centers, if you will, are they dealing with staffing shortages as well? We're seeing that in many other industries and businesses. Is that, is that also the case with you? I can't tell you how much that's a problem for us. It is it is a huge problem. We also have a veterinary clinic on site, as does the SPCA in Hamilton. And we are really struggling with getting veterinarians, registered veterinary technicians, and, you know, frontline staff, and in the shelter as well. Very, very difficult. I can't stress enough how much we need people to apply. Kevin Struband is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Kevin is the executive director of the Lincoln County Humane Society, talking about animal shelters feeling the crunch as uh, many uh, animals are being returned uh, to uh, animal shelters and uh, adoption uh, clinics uh, throughout the country. Uh, We heard uh, the other day from the CEO of Humane Canada, who said that we're seeing a shift in the types of animals coming into shelters and also seeing an increase in behavioral issues and medical issues that require more resources to help them get them ready for adoption. Are you seeing the same thing? We are seeing that. You know, it, it is unfortunate. We had a, a little a French bulldog come in here, cutest thing you've ever seen, and it had a prolapse rectum, so it needed some intense surgery to get that corrected. And that's been done, and soon uh, she will be going up for adoption, but the owners couldn't afford it, so that was something that we took on. And although it's you know, it's not something we can always do. We have some great supporters, and they helped us do it. Again, people are prioritizing, right? Like, I, I can't afford to do this surgery. Whatever the case may be, you know, it's a difficult time for people, and we understand that. So we're going to always do what we can to help those animals, but it's a little challenging. You're also seeing animals stay in the shelter a little bit longer compared to perhaps previous years? They are, because we're just not getting those numbers into the shelter. So 
that and that means it's incumbent on us to market our animals to make sure that they're you know in the forefront of people's mind as they're scrolling through Facebook, you know, maybe at uh, whatever resort they're at, they're like, "Hey, look at that little kitten and come on down and adopt it." What makes a good pet owner or or someone who you know is going to take care of this pet? They need to be committed. They need to make sure that they want a pet for the right reasons. And we ask the the questions to make sure that there's a fit between the pet and the potential adopter because we don't want it returned. We want to make sure that it is a forever home. That being said, if there's a problem, we do take it back. We also look for those people that take their pets to the vet, that make sure that when there's a problem, they're going to do the right thing. And most people do, not everybody. And then we might have a conversation where adoption might not be their best option or but they wait for a while till their situation changes. So, you know, we're pretty open and honest about that. Yes, there are some people who will get upset about it, but for the most part, people respect what we're saying. They understand, you know, we are the experts. We've been doing this for a long time, so we try to make sure it's a good match. And don't forget, our focus is on that pet. If someone wants some more information on the Lincoln County Humane Society, they can go online, lchs.ca. Are there pets on the website that people can see to say, hey, this this certain pet's up for adoption? Absolutely. And also look at our Facebook page. The dog walkers do a great job of marketing our dogs that are for adoption, too. Great stuff. Kevin, thanks for the time today. Thanks, Rick. That's Kevin Struband. He is the executive director of the Lincoln County Humane Society for thinking about adopting a pet. Uh, think long and hard. Think about the pros and cons. And uh, then if uh, everything's okay, you got all check marks, um, take action, as there's a lot of pets that uh, need a great home. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the hockey season may be over. Well, a week or so away from free agency kicking off. So there's going to be lots of hockey news uh, to come in the next few days and weeks. But there's also a lot of information that we're digesting courtesy of a new survey by a hockey analytics team that shows fans of one particular team are the most annoying and the most delusional. Jack Frazier, known as Jay Fresh, is a lead analytics writer at EP Ringside and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jack, good morning. How are you? I'm not doing too bad. How about you? Not too bad. Before we get into the uh, the results of the survey, how was this survey or study conducted? Well, I put out a poll uh, on out on Twitter. Uh, usually they get spread around pretty quickly. This is the second time that I've done this kind of survey. Usually gets a very good response, mostly because people think it's funny and they spread it around to their friends. Uh, and, and this was no exception. I think this was the most responses that I've ever gotten to any kind of poll. You know, usually I do you know, kind of player surveys and, and things like that. But, you know, when you start picking on fan bases, I think people get very enthusiastic and spread it around to as many people as they can. Yeah, without a doubt, the results are, are very interesting. And you got a ton of results. So we're going to discuss the most annoying, the most delusional, and the fan base that's most prone to a meltdown. We've all been there and done that, I'm sure. Let's start with the most annoying. What did you find? Well, uh, not the biggest surprise in the world. Uh, for the second year in a row, Toronto Maple Leafs come out very far ahead. And and what we found most often was that the Canadian team's fan bases, Montreal, Winnipeg, Vancouver, Edmonton, all these guys, they all feel the same way about the Toronto Maple Leafs fans, which is that they find them uh, incredibly irritating. Uh, and, and I'm sure that some of that probably has to do with uh, the amount of media coverage they get, uh, especially from the national outlets. I'm sure there's a bit of resentment there that you can't turn on your TV in Vancouver without hearing 20 minutes about the Toronto Maple Leafs. But uh, 
they clearly took it out on the fan base, and, and they're probably a little bit sick of the Leafs fans, to tell you the truth. I'm a Maple Leafs diehard fan, and yes, I can admit we are the most annoying. <laughs> and and you and you mentioned it. I mean, the media attention lends to that. Uh, a lot of attention, and perhaps rightfully so, is paid to the Maple Leafs. They are one of the most iconic teams. They seem to make the biggest blunders, at least uh, recently, so I, I really get that. Second on the list was the Rangers, followed by the Montreal Canadiens, Edmonton Oilers, and St. Louis Blues. Any surprise beyond Toronto being at the top? Well, the Rangers really jumped up this year. Uh, you know, I did the survey last offseason. The Rangers really didn't register that much. They were, you know, coming off a bit of a rebuild. They hadn't made the playoffs in a couple of years. Uh, you know, people weren't really registering them as, as the team that had a, a, a particularly noteworthy fan base. Uh, but, you know, all it really took was kind of a season where the Rangers did well, the fans got into it, uh, and, you know, especially, you know, the way that their team succeeded where, you know, there was a little bit of maybe sustainability issues in terms of how their play was going to translate uh, as the season went on. I think a couple fans got a bit of a chip on their shoulder, uh, especially the way that the playoffs went. You know, they go on a little bit of a, of a surprising run. And, uh, you know, I, I think they tended to rub quite a few fans the wrong way. And, you know, what? good on them. Uh, to some extent, if, if you're very high on this list, that's probably a good sign that your team is doing something right because, uh, if you look at teams that aren't doing so well right now, you know, who might have been on this list a couple of years ago, Chicago fans, Vancouver fans, you know, they've ranked pretty low because I think a lot of people just kind of forgot about them. So, you know, good on you if you got high enough on this list, to tell you the truth. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Jack Fraser, lead analytics writer at EP Ringside. You can check out his work and a bunch of other great things online at epringside.com. From the most annoying list in which Toronto tops to the most delusional fan base, what did you find? Well, it's Toronto again. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and you know what? This one I think maybe was a little bit unfair because... You know, I, I, I understand why people might think that Toronto fans are a bit delusional. You know, they pick them to win the Stanley Cup. They're very confident about their team year after year, you know, which is a relatively new phenomenon because, you know, I, I've, I've, I'm not a Leafs fan, but I have lived in Toronto for about nine years now. And uh, Leafs fans being delusionally optimistic about their team, I think, is a relatively new thing. I, I remember them being very pessimistic for most of the time that I've lived here. Uh, but, you know, I, I think Leafs fans at this point – after, you know, five straight seasons of losing Game 7s in the first round. I, I think a lot of them are, are, are very realistic about their team, uh, very pessimistic about their team very frequently, even if maybe they get a bit excited when they start going up 3-1 in series. So, uh, you know what? They they won fair and square. The, you know, democracy works, but uh, maybe that's not one that I necessarily would have voted them for. Uh, I should mention as well that the Maple Leafs are by far and away have the fan base that are most annoying and most delusional. On the delusional stage, Edmonton and the Rangers come in in second and third, followed by Montreal and Vancouver. We only got about 30 seconds to talk about the fan base that's most prone to a meltdown, and we should not be surprised that it's the Leafs again. Yeah, by the biggest margin of anything. And, And you know what? That's the one that makes a lot of sense to me. If anybody remembers what happened when they lost, you know, six or seven games back in November, fire the coach, fire the GM, trade all the players, and then, of course, they turn around and have their best regular season ever. So I think we've we've learned our lesson, but if they go on a three-game losing streak next December, we'll be right back where we started. (laughs) The sky's always falling, or they're going on a Stanley Cup run. Jack, appreciate the time today. Thanks for sharing uh, this information. 
Thanks for having me. That is Jack Fraser, known as Jay Fresh online, and you can check him out, epringside.com, the lead analytics writer for EP Ringside. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.